0: All right, ooh, hot mic. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. If you've uh, never been to the vineyard on a rainy morning, um, it makes it's real interesting. When it's a, uh, a nice, gentle rain like we're t- experiencing now, and' sort of pleasant and calming. unfortunately, it's great for catching a nap, so just be extra mindful of that. Um, and then if it gets, uh, heavy, which it might this morning, um, then it becomes like this weird cacophony in here. <laughs> it gets real wild and John will just turn up my mic and I'll yell at you and know that I'm not mad. I'm just yelling. Um, and then it doesn't work real well and I encourage you to get the podcast. So we'll just see how it goes. We'll, we're going to see how it goes. Hey, before we jump into the sermon, I want to encourage you to put this in your hand. These little cards, we, we, we. Put as obstacles in front of you <laughs> before you sat down. Um, I want to take just a couple of minutes here. We just do this every once in a great while. Whenever it's needed, we stop and take a moment and encourage you guys to really consider getting plugged in to serve in the life of our church. Find ways to take some steps to get more involved and, of course, to help serve and make things go around here. I always think of uh, the story of David. David and Goliath, that incredible Uh, Sunday school classic where he slays the giant and it's this incredible story that we see weirdly depicted on children's walls. It's quite gory, but nevertheless, good for the kids apparently. But um, what's so remarkable about about this young man who does this incredible feat uh, empowered by God is that it started with him delivering cheese. His dad said, hey, why don't you go to the real warriors on the front lines? They might need a snack. And it started with him delivering cheese, and the story ended with him slaying a giant and conquering a nation and becoming a hero to his people. And uh, man, there are are moments, especially if you look at this list, I hope you are now, you might go, how significant are these things? I want to tell you, these things are really, really significant, and it might feel like just delivering cheese but I will tell you this, there are people in this church who have delivered cheese and went on to slay giants. Um, And what's really wonderful, and I, I, you know, whenever you have a guest come in, it's really, it's really weird to point them out, but um, I'm going to, (laughs) even though I have a rule against it. Mel and Joy Hancock, I said guest, those are the wrong words. Mel and Joy are here. And the spontaneous uh, clapping is because um, they are these incredibly beloved people who, um, sadly, I'm glad you're sitting down. You may not know this yet. They have moved away. Grandchildren always win. The grandchildren won, and the Hancocks have moved away. But I'll I'll use them as an example because they're the best one I've got. Man, um, these folks showed up here however many years ago. Four, five, six, seven, six, seven. I'm going to go with Joy. (laughs) Seven years ago. (laughs) And they showed up and decided that they were going to deliver cheese and that they were going to welcome every person who came in this and that there was going to be, there was no, they just took it onto themselves. You're not going to walk in this door and not be known. And can I just tell you that they have transformed our church. In the process of just being really kind and hospitable and intentional, um, and they have slain some giants in in um, for the kingdom in, in like really real meaningful ways. Man, it's such a big deal. Um, as you look on the back of this card, uh, I just want to highlight a couple of these uh, areas where, here's the thing, we, we've sort of been, everything's been frozen <laughs> for like a year, and now everything's thawing out a little bit. And um, as we sort of re-engage something like normal in the life of our church, there's some places where we have particular need, especially around making things happen on Sunday mornings, because everybody's sort of out of that routine, and we're sort of working our way back in. And so we really need help with folks who will greet and who will usher Um and if you want, you can talk to Mel and Joy about how incredibly powerful that is. But I'll tell you this, it's really a matter of the heart. Joy walked in this morning and asked if there's anything she could do. <laughs> she was like, is there any way I can jump in and help? Um, that's, you know, it's a matter of the heart. Uh, greeting and usher, kids ministry in particular, we got lots of people are starting to come back and bring their kids back. And of course, we want to love and serve and care for those kids as best we can. And really in this process, our kids ministry is, our volunteer base is just kind of it pretty much went away. And now we've got a build it back up. And so um, that's an area I want to highlight. Also youth and preteen happening a couple doors down. Um, Again, things that make things go on Sunday mornings. But any of these things that may catch your attention, uh, musician, multimedia, you want to help serve in a number of ways, you can um, just fill this out, mark the corresponding box or boxes, and drop it in the offering box as you leave, which are at the exits. As you walk out. And I'll just say this to be very, very clear. We always we always make this very clear. Everybody listen, everybody with me? you're not signing up to serve if you fill out this card. <laughs> you're signing up to get more information because what we don't even say what we mean by serving in these areas. <laughs> Who knows? It could be like a terrible bait and switch. You are not signing up to serve when you fill out this card. You're saying, hey, I'm at least mildly interested and I'm okay with it if somebody calls me and tells me more. So I want to encourage you and you might go, oh, I'm not sure I'm ready to jump back in. Look, if you have the slightest inclination, there is a significant need in our church now, more than we've had in quite a long time as we look to read, build on the other side of this pandemic, and so I really want to encourage you um, to do that. Hey, let me take a second to pray, and we will jump right into the message. Father, we love you uh, so much, and it's so wonderful, God, to be gathered with your people, to be here, Lord, in your presence, to be able to experience you um, in a way that is just unique to the gathered church. It's just something unique about it. And so, with all the faith and expectation we can muster here together, we say, Holy Spirit, come. Come and move in this place. Come and speak to our hearts. And as we now, uh, as we embark upon Holy Week, preparing ourselves for Easter, and we look to the cross, the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, may our hearts be um, focused and zeroed in, ready to experience anew the sacrifice that you made for us. And Lord, we ask that as we do this, your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room. God, just like it is in heaven. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in John chapter 19 and we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. If you want to find that in your Bible, uh, we will get there uh, actually toward the end. We're going to work our way to it. Uh, things are happening really quickly now. You know uh, the pace of things has really picked up. If you remember, we spent five chapters and in our, for us several months at one dinner party, and now over the course of just a few verses, things are really starting to pick up. We have the garden, the betrayal, the arrest, the denial, uh, the scourging, the trial, and the weird twisting turns that all happened with that. And now in chapter 19, the crucifixion. And this, of course, is the central event, um, I believe, in all of human history. So this is a big one. And Jesus went out of his way to say, I want you to remember what happened on that day. I want this to be a cherished memory for you. And here's the thing about memories, though. Uh, Memories are funny things, man. They are weird deals. I have a a book that I really enjoy. It's called Brain Rules. A guy named John Medina, he's a brain scientist, wrote it. And he was talking about how memories work. And he explained, basically that uh, when you have a memory in the course of the day, your your brain sort of holds it over and, and ram for a while. And then when you go to sleep at night, it gets filed away. And the way that it files away your memories as you sleep is it calls up that memory, and then it slices it into millions of tiny bits of data and information. And then it splatters it all over in different places in your brain. And then whenever you call that memory back up, those millions of pieces of data and information get spliced back together and that's the memory that you have and there's a that maybe helps you understand it's not a perfect retrieval system and that's why memories tend to fade over time that's why memories tend to blur together with one another over time because because it's not a perfect system this is why our memories are, are, are notoriously just infamously unreliable Um, and some more so than others, uh, Sharon, not too long ago, we were celebrating our anniversary and she said, why don't we just for fun, go back and remember all the things that we've done each year for our anniversary. And I turned white as a sheet and I was like, why do you want to ruin our anniversary? I'm not going to remember anything. And she remembered all of them. And I remembered like three of them that were all blurred together and terribly wrong. And she was gracious in spite of it. Um, our memories are a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and they fade over time. Memories are weird; they operate in strange ways. I'll tell you a, a sort of a weird memory that that I have. I was nine years old, and uh, for some reason we were hanging out with this guy who's a grown man, um, and he was he was a real gentleman, if you know what I mean. Just a real he's a real winner, and uh, he decided. Because he was such an awesome dude that he would just pick on this nine-year-old kid, and he's giving me a hard time. And he goes, boy, I just want you to know I, I saved your life this week. And I was like, oh, wow, how'd you, do, how'd you do that? And he goes, I killed a poop-eating dog. Except he didn't say poop because he's a real winner, remember? Um, and I was like, he's calling me poop. That's what he's doing. And I said, oh, really? Uh, how did you do that? Did you, did you climb up in a tree and starve it to death? I called him poop. Ha-ha! <laughs> now, here's why I tell that story. Two reasons. Number one, I realize that whenever I tell stories from my childhood, um, I look like a total idiot. And in this one, I thought I looked kind of clever, so I wanted to tell that one. And here's another reason. That memory is one of a whole stack of memories that I have that I don't, I don't really know if they're actual memories or if I just remember being told the story. And when I was told the story, I placed myself in the story. And so my mind filed that away as a memory that I have. And I'm not sure that it's even a memory that I have. I got a whole bunch of stuff like that floating around in here. And really, that's kind of what anamnesis is. This is what we've been talking about the last three weeks, or this being the third and uh, final of the series where we're talking about this. Anamnesis is pulling the past into the present and picturing yourself within the story. All right, just like I do with that memory. Or maybe, maybe I remember, maybe I don't. I don't, I'm not really not sure. But picturing yourself in the story and in a very real way, it makes you feel like you were there. Like, uh, I, I watched The Office, all of it, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it again. And uh, when uh, Jim finally makes his move on Pam, finally, Um, I feel like I was there. I was so excited. I feel like I know all these people. I think in my brain, somewhere in my subconscious, it thinks I know Jim and Pam, that I was like there for diversity day and the booze cruise and like, because I've placed myself in the story so much that those have become like tangible, real memories that feel like they're mine in sort of like this kind of legitimate, substantial, immersive kind of way. And that's actually a really big, deal. And here's why. Because before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us a very, very special, significant way for us to remember his sacrifice. Uh, We we call it communion, or maybe you've heard it called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. I like to call it the table of grace. They all work. And Jesus said, "I, I want you to take bread And wine, bread representing my body broken for you, wine representing my blood poured out for you. And as you take the bread and the wine, I want you to remember the sacrifice that I made for you through the cross. And the phrase that he used was, do this, if you're a church kid, this will sound real familiar, do this in remembrance of me. Maybe you've seen it across a communion table written across the front. Do this in remembrance of me. But there's a, which is clear, perfectly clear. But then there's a part of me that goes, can I actually do that? Because the fact is I cannot call up a memory of Jesus's death. I wasn't there. How can I have a remembrance? How can I have a recollection of something if I wasn't there for it? And this is one of the moments where the original Greek is actually quite helpful. Because the original Greek, Jesus said, do this in Anamnesis of me. Do this in remembrance. Do this in anamnesis of me. Now, um, we're going to geek out on this word for a minute here because it's really, it's a really interesting word. Um, Anamnesis was actually a concept and a word that was invented by this guy named Plato, that should hopefully ring a bell, not Plato, the thing that you play with, but Plato, one word, um, who was this big shot philosopher about 400 years before Jesus, okay? 400 years before Jesus. And he invented this concept and then called it anamnesis. This is where it came from. And, And for him, anamnesis is the idea that we are Born with a certain amount of inherent knowledge built in, especially about the big philosophical ideas like the nature of truth and reality and consciousness and virtue. Those great big ideas, he goes, they're actually they come pre-installed at birth, but we just can't access them. Now, his thinking around this was that he he believed that all humans were pre-existent and that we we have eternal souls and that our eternal souls lived. a a functionally infinite amount of time before this little stint that we spend here on earth. And so we have lots of information that we can access, but it all just gets wiped at birth. And his idea was that when we learn about these big concepts, we're not really learning about them. We're just finding a way to access this inherent knowledge that's built inside. And the idea of reaching back to grab this this knowledge or these memories that you kind of have, but don't really have. He called that anamnesis. Reaching back into a past that you know, but kind of don't know and pulling the truth from that past, the reality from that past into your present. And that's the word that Jesus used when he said, do this in remembrance, do this in anamnesis of me. Communion, I hope you're with me. Communion is pulling the past, the past 2,000 years ago, the past that we, we kind of know and kind of don't know. And we are pulling it into the present to experience it for ourselves as if we were there, as a memory that is truly ours. And I want you to recognize memories are very, 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 very powerful. Very experiential, very immersive. If you've experienced significant trauma in your life, simply remembering those traumatic events will put you back in that place of trauma, your body experiencing all that it experienced in that moment. That's a common thing. This is a really immersive thing. And when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was saying something like, I want you to take the event of my death 2,000 years ago And I want you to pull it into your present reality and then experience it for yourself right now in this sacred moment as if you were there. You guys with me? Anamnesis is more than just not forgetting about the story that we read. It's experiential. It's it's actually entering into that story on some level. And by the way, as far as, as far as like me or us remembering it, as far as me remembering the cross, even though I wasn't there, here's the thing. in Okay, small. But in some sense, I kind of was there. Don't worry, no new doctrines coming, but just stick with me. Um, I, I was carried in the mind and the heart of Jesus as he died in my place my whole story was the good and the bad and the ugly was literally there with him. My failures and my sin and my guilt and my shame were there and they were carried by Jesus in that moment when he died in my place. I was a fully present reality to Jesus in that moment. And that's not actually so far away from actually being there in some, some sense. Think of it this way. Uh, Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago, bore my sin, and in so doing, he was pulling the future into his present. Do You see that? All of my sins were future sins when Jesus died for my sins. You see that? He was Pulling the future into the present. And he says, when you remember that event where I pulled the future in the present, I want you to do the reverse. Conversely, when you remember that event, I want you to use anamnesis. I want you to pull the past into the present. Put the simplest way I know how. That's all I'm saying. When we, not if, but when we remember the cross, we're supposed to do all that we can to experience it ourselves. Fully and in some sense you were there and but in a much more literal sense you were certainly not there so what does he say he says put yourself there and believe me when i say this guys god meets us in that he it is he meets us in it hopefully you've experienced it here week after week again and again through the elements it is something it is something mysterious it is something miraculous I, I certainly cannot define it, but it is is—it is altogether real. He meets us in that. Now, um, I want to say something about this before we move on. Um, I, I say it all the time around here. We're like, we're a Bible church, like full-on, all-the-way Bible church. And um, we have the highest possible view of Scripture to hold it in the highest possible regard, give it the greatest possible authority as the final arbiter on all issues. Okay. But here's what I've noticed. This is just anecdotal, but I think it's real. Um, folks who have a really high view of Scripture get a little bit uneasy when people like me talk about stuff like this. And it makes sense. It does. And I think the concerns are real. They say, well, you know, if you're going to immerse yourself in the Scripture, if you're going to place yourself as part of the story within the text, then that might, in some way, if you're not careful, could actually alter the text. And and if in some way, if we place ourselves in the story and imagine ourselves there, if we, if we practice anamnesis and insert ourselves into the story, well, maybe along the way, our imagination could possibly get elevated to the level of Scripture itself, and then maybe doctrine gets, gets rewritten, and that would be really, 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 really bad. And I hear that, and like I, I have nothing to say to that other than absolutely. We, we just positively cannot do that. Like We just have to know not don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But if we're gonna have the highest possible view of scripture, then we have to believe what scripture says about scripture. And one of the things that scripture says about scripture in Hebrews chapter four, it says that the word of God is living and active. And because it's living and active, it's able to cut through to the joint and the marrow. In other words, it's able to meet us right where we are and slice right to the core. So one of the ways I, I, I think about this um, is uh, wind chimes on your back porch. If you don't have wind chimes on your back porch, just pretend. Maybe you don't have a back porch. We're just pretending. Wind chimes on your back porch. Each of those chimes, however many they are, they, are, they, re- they, they play the same note. All right? They just play the same note again and again and again and again. In that sense, they are stagnant. All right? They don't change. Um, and I think of the truth of Scripture as those wind chimes. The truth is the truth is the truth. It doesn't change. It's, it's laid out for us in the text. But when you sit on your porch and the wind blows through those wind chimes, it's a different song. It's a different melody every time. And when you open up God's word, I, I want to say it again. The truth of scripture will not change. But when you open up God's word and invite the Holy Spirit, as we were taught in John chapter 16, to be our teacher And the wind of the Holy Spirit blows over us and blows over the text. It will sing a song that is unique to our moment. And each time as we immerse ourselves into the text, we will experience it in a way that is so dynamic and living and active. You know, Paul told Timothy that it's the inspired word of God. That word means breathed, God breathed. And when God breathes over his text and breathes over us, it's this dynamic, immersive, interactive, unique experience because you're inviting the Holy Spirit to lead you through it. And he will teach and he will heal and he will transform and he will challenge and he will encourage you right where you are in the moment where you find yourself because the word of God is living and it's active. Um, Here's what we're going to do with our last few minutes here. Um, And David, you can come on up for this part if you would. Um, We're going to give it a shot. Um, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to fairly slowly uh, read through the story of the crucifixion as we find in John chapter 19. Um, And there are other narratives as well. If if you're a church kid, you might go, what about this part or that part? And the truth is the story we know of uh, the gospel is pieced together through the four gospels. Um, So we're just going to read one of the four uh, narratives that we come to in John. And um, what I want to encourage you to do is to reach and to pull the past into the present to the extent that you possibly can, immerse yourself in the story. Um, And as we do this, this will then sort of lead us into communion together. So it'll be a couple minutes, but we're gonna have communion in a moment. Um, Hopefully you have the elements with you. If you didn't get them on the way in, now's the time to go grab them. They're in the back corners of the room. People always forget it's not weird. Don't be shy. Don't hesitate. People are moving that way now. That's great. So as we look to the text, I just want to encourage you, uh, if you're comfortable doing so, to close your eyes. If you don't want to, don't. That's fine. People very commonly will sort of take, we call it the vineyard pose, where you extend your hands. It's just, it's just a, a, a physical reminder that I'm open to hearing to receive from the Lord. You might want to do that. You might not. That's fine. Okay. John chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull. In Hebrew, it's called Gotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. The leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it to From the king of the Jews to, he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I've written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that's what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, and just for context, that would be John, the author of this text. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside John, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, John took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it's finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. let's just remain in a sort of a place of reflection and imagination. Your eyes are closed. Maybe you could keep them closed a bit longer if you're comfortable doing so. And from this place, we're going to move toward Selah, which is something we do every week, a couple of minutes to reflect on our own. And I'm really hopeful I'm really hopeful that as you prepare for Easter, you will come to one or maybe all of the stories of Christ's crucifixion and slowly work your way through it, reading the text not once, but maybe three or four times, placing yourself there within the story. And what's good is you can ask yourself questions when you're there. And so I just want to prompt you with a question to ask yourself now. Now as you continue to imagine yourself there at the foot of the cross. So one of the things that stands out to me, probably to you as well, is that Jesus, even though he was in the midst of more suffering than we can ever begin to fathom, he was still mindful of the people who were there. And in his agony, took the time even to speak to them. He spoke to John and he spoke to his mother. Something personal something unique to them and so if we're in these couple of moments here of stillness hopefully at this point you have imagined yourself there with a handful of people who didn't run off gazing up at the cross seeing your savior carrying the weight and the shame and the burden of your sin fueled by infinite love infinite love and so if you're there with him, you know the Lord, he chose to spoke to John and to Mary. Let's imagine that he might choose to speak to you as well. So for in this moment or two, why don't you invite the Holy Spirit to give you perhaps an inkling of what Jesus might have said to you in that moment. As he carried your sin, as he was yet just completely overcome with grace and love. I'll tell you in advance, you will be kind. Let's take a couple of moments to be still and maybe just maybe hear from the Holy Spirit. holding all that in your mind and in your heart let's make our way now